Tis the season to shine with H&M. Discover the holiday collection and find fashionable pieces for your wardrobe or for under the tree. Get inspired and dazzle with this year's glam. From tuxedo styles, bow detailed pieces, impressive prints, and more. From unforgettable looks to unforgettable gifts. With fashion finds to home decor, find it all at H&M. Treat your loved ones and yourself this season. Shop in-store or at hm.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we examined the many, many controversial facets of Rana Faluna's reign over Madagascar, such as her clashes with the Malagasy Christian community, her reintroduction of poisoning ordeals, the exodus of the London Missionary Society, the policy of seizing property from European migrant workers if they refused to accept full Malagasy citizenship, and her defeat of an Anglo-French attempt to capture the city of Tuamasina. It turned out that the Mad Queen, while undeniably quite cruel, was far from mad, but a cold, logical, and effective ruler who ingeniously politically maneuvered to preserve her own power during a time of strife. This episode, Rana Falona will face her final challenge, when one of her closest allies turns into one of her most dangerous rivals. Season 4, Episode 22, The Lambert Coup. By 1845, Madagascar was the most diplomatically isolated it had ever been in its history. Ranafaluna's prohibition of Malagasy conversion to Christianity, and the subsequent exit of the vast majority of Christian missionaries from Madagascar, and then followed by her effort to force full citizenship obligations on European migrants, culminated in a failed Anglo-French invasion of Tuamasina, and subsequently, the end of diplomatic relations between Madagascar and their former British allies. In this tumultuous situation, Rana Faluna sought to find new economic and diplomatic partners to replace the British. One surprising partner to emerge came from halfway across the world, in the form of the young nation of the United States. Merchants from the New England states, particularly Massachusetts, had long possessed a humble but growing trade presence in East Africa, including on Madagascar. While Rana Faluna was initially quite hostile towards them, fearing that they would sell goods to the British and violate the ongoing embargo that Rana Faluna was placing against her former allies, eventually a visit from the American consul to Zanzibar warmed relations between the two countries. While trade with the United States grew, the largest partner to emerge following the British embargo was Zanzibar itself. Zanzibar had long been an overseas colony of Oman, an Arabian sultanate with colonies sprinkled throughout the coast of eastern Africa. But by the 1820s, the Zanzibar colony had actually far exceeded the Omani homeland in wealth, splendor, and political stability. The Sultan of Oman even went so far as to move his capital to the East African island, making Zanzibar into the new center of the Omani Empire. Arab and Swahili merchants had dominated Madagascar's foreign trade in the past, and with Rana Faluna's imposition of an embargo, they once again ruled Malagasy markets. Despite these new trade connections, the embargo against British trade proved detrimental to all sides. British colonies in the Indian Ocean, especially Mauritius, began to dramatically suffer. While Asian indentured labor had greatly reduced the colony's reliance on Malagasy workers, the colony still largely relied on Madagascar for food and, most of all, leather. 
Meanwhile, Malagasy exporters had substantially fewer buyers and struggled to move their products. In 1851, after five years of painful economic embargo, the British finally decided to bite the bullet. They agreed to pay Ranafaluna a moderate sum of money as an apology for the Tuamasina raid. While the money lost from the embargo likely exceeded the humble £13,000 sum by a great deal, the British payment was a political victory for Ranafaluna, who could now repeal the embargo while still having quote-unquote won the dispute. The context of Madagascar's foreign affairs is going to be very relevant for the next major development in Marina history. And everything that happens is going to include a few important players who have been hanging around in the background and are just now taking their place on the political Fanuruna board. These are, most notably, Rakoto, Ranafaluna's son and heir apparent, and one of the sons of Prime Minister Rainiharu, a young man named Raharu. Ranafaluna's son, Rakoto, is better known to history by the name he adopted later in life, Radama II. Ironically, despite this choice of nomenclature, Rakoto was not the biological son of Radama himself. Although he was recognized legally as Radama's descendant, Rakoto was born in 1829, a little over 16 months after Radama passed away. This date is sometimes disputed, given that Rana Faluna herself was supposedly 51 years old when she gave birth to her son. But while this sort of birth is extremely rare, pregnancies over 50 do in fact happen, especially in the era before modern birth control. And sometimes the kids and mother emerge from the ordeal relatively healthy. The exact identity of Rakoto's biological father is also uncertain. While the most common guess is that Rana Faluna's first prime minister, André Mihaja, was Rakoto's father, Rana Faluna kept multiple lovers at any given time, as was customary for Medina monarchs. So in theory, his father could have been any number of different people. Rakoto grew up in a period of political strife which greatly affected his upbringing. André Mihaja, the likely biological father of the boy, was deposed and executed by his mother and her new conservative allies when Rakoto was just two years old. The exodus of the London Missionary Society happened when he was just eight. As a result, if Rakoto did spend any time in a missionary school as a kid, it was for a pretty short period. Instead, he spent the bulk of his childhood under the tutelage of a man we've heard quite a bit about throughout the show, the distinguished Malagasy historian and scholar Raumbana. Raumbana is himself a fascinating man. He had been among the crowd of Malagasy youth sent to Britain under Radama's rule, and returned to his country just in time for Ranafaluna to take power. While you'd expect Ranafaluna's skepticism towards British influence to hinder the returning Rambana's career, the opposite actually came true. As relations between the two island countries declined and schools closed, the already existing class of literate Malgasi educated either in Britain or in missionary schools found themselves in a new irreplaceable position as the country's chief academics. Rambana was a member of Madagascar's more xenophilic political faction, favoring the open foreign policy of Radama over the strained foreign relations under Ranafaluna. But fortunately for himself and Malgasi historical studies, Rambana managed to keep his mouth shut enough that he remained untouched by the 1831 coup. He became an important leader in foreign relations. I'd love to get more into his life, because he's a fascinating figure, 
So the biography of Rambala will feature as the topic of our newest premium episode. If you'd like to learn more about Madagascar's most famous historian, how he ended up reaching high places in Rana Faluna's government, and his brave but ultimately unsuccessful pushes for social reforms, you can learn more about him on our latest premium episode at patreon.com historyofafrica. Now, given his reputation as the most educated and intelligent scholar on Madagascar, Rana Falona went out of her way to ensure that Raumbana would educate her son. Furthermore, Rakoto was also tutored by Ruharu Lahie, another distinguished Malagasy scholar, who was one of the scholars behind the publication of the very first English Malagasy dictionary. So, while Rakoto wasn't being tutored directly by European missionaries, the men tutoring him were about the closest thing to missionaries remaining on Madagascar in terms of the influence they had on the young man. And, as he grew older, the political influence of this education showed. Ironically, as his own mother became gradually more hostile towards foreign influence in Madagascar, her son grew ever more receptive towards it. In addition to his upbringing and education, Rakoto was also influenced by his peers. Rakoto belonged to a social clique of ambitious young men popularly known as the Menamasu. The origins of the term Menamasu, literally translating to red eyes, is heavily debated, with the proposed etymologies dramatically changing how you perceive the group's influence and nature. One popular claim is that Menamasu was a reference to the reddish tint that formed in the young men's eyes after abusing copious amounts of alcohol. On the other hand, a rival claim states, well, the opposite, that the term menamasu derives from how the young men stayed up late at night studying and had red eyes from constant tiredness. Others claim that the nickname was never meant to be taken literally, but was a cultural euphemism for either shamelessness or bravery, depending on your perspective. Now, the menamasu was a cultural movement in Madagascar which basically represented the punks of their generation, a subculture of rebellious youths. Particularly, they flaunted their embrace of foreign cultures. They wore garish European-style clothing, loved to dance the polka, and, get this, sometimes even flirted with the scandalous religion of Christianity. And remember, this was very scandalous. They were doing this at a time when being openly Christian was a potential death sentence on Madagascar. On the other hand, the interest of Menamasu in Christianity was often more as a cultural aesthetic, more than an actual set of beliefs. And due to this trend, many Menamasu actually fell pretty far away from the typical Western mold of a good Christian. Some other trends and activities that constituted part of their rebellion were free love, excessive rum drinking, and other activities that would have made their beloved missionaries scoff. But beyond their penchant for rebellious behavior... Menamasu varied a lot. Some were apparently quite stand-up guys. Rakoto and some of his immediate friends were known for distributing free medicine to the poor, demanding for owners to liberate enslaved workers, and even disrupting Tangana ordeals before the poison could be administered. Of course, most of them were of noble birth, and they performed these rebellious activities knowing that their elite status would earn them leniency, but still, they admittedly come across as pretty cool. But apparently, Rakoto didn't mind hanging out with posers either. Many of Rakoto's friends were apparently only interested in being Menamasu when it meant drinking imported rum and dancing, and were less interested in the charitable acts part of the subculture. Like most subcultures today, reports from the time indicate that they were a mixed bag. 
Those childhood friends stuck around Rikoto's life for a while longer, so this isn't the last we'll see of them. He began to take on a more substantial role in the Merina government. He was, after all, the heir to the kingdom. He started to become a treasured figure among the foreigner population on Madagascar, in particular. While Rana Faluna was aloof and suspicious while interacting with foreigners, Rakuto was a breath of fresh air, enthusiastic and friendly. During the trade embargo against Britain, he was active in encouraging his mother to end the embargo and reopen trade. But most importantly to Madagascar's foreign population, he represented for them a hope for the future. It is because of the influence of Rakoto that men like de la Stelle and Jean Laborde remained on the island even after the Queen's demand that they perform Panampuana duties and after the imposition of the costly trade embargo. As long as Rakoto was the heir apparent, they could hold out hope that all of these policies that stung them were temporary. Rana Faluna was old, after all, over 70 years old by 1850. So Rakuto's day in the sun was just around the corner. Except, well, that day in the sun seemingly never came. While foreigners in Madagascar held their breath waiting for Rana Faluna to catch an illness and croak, they quietly seethed as she remained healthy even at an advanced age. But a man whose day in the sun was just around the corner was the son of the Prime Minister, Raharu. As the son of a Prime Minister and Sampie guardian, Raharu grew up in constant danger. Contrary to analyses which claim that Rana Faluna was a mere puppet to her Prime Minister, the exact extent of Raharu's father's power was under constant scrutiny. When Raharu was just a seven-year-old child, his father married Rana Faluna following the execution of the previous prime minister. This marriage provided his father with the legitimacy to perform crucial administrative and bureaucratic duties within the Malgasy state, managing the plethora of regional governors under his command. But this power came with immense risk. The prime minister constantly saw his power undermined by the queen and her close advisor-slash-part-time lover, the Sampie guardian, Raini Johari. The Prime Minister had been a moderate conservative, essentially the progressive wing within Rana Faluna's conservative government, which led to constant feuds with the hardliner Raini Johari. At one point, remember, this even resulted in Raini Haru's family undergoing the Tangena ordeal, with his son Raharu himself likely being administered and luckily surviving the poisonous tea as a child. Although he was not Andriana by birth and was rather of Hofa descent, his father's political connections allowed him to enroll in a missionary school in Antanarifu, making him one of the last members of the generation educated in missionary schools. Due to this missionary education, Raharu came out of the school slightly more positive towards foreign influence than his father, but still generally maintained his family tradition of cautious centrism. As he came into adulthood, Raharu, as well as his brother, who will also feature as one of the most prominent and influential historical figures in the coming decades, mind you, each joined the army as officers. Both brothers proved their mettle in the year 1852. That year, the Antifaisia people of the eastern coast of Madagascar went into rebellion against Rana Faluna, and the prime ministerial sons were called up to serve as officers. The two served admirably and earned some fame in elite circles due to their status as war heroes. And, in a tragic twist of perfect timing, their father passed away just a few months after their triumphant return from the battlefield. While certainly emotionally traumatic, their father's death proved incredibly timely for the young officers' careers, 
coming at the height of their military service. Since the prime ministership was still an unofficial office, there was no existing system of succession laid out after the death of a prime minister. In this era of his celebrity, Raharu made a convincing case that he, as the eldest son of the previous prime minister and stepson of the queen, deserved the position. There was no official promotion of prime minister, befitting the office's unofficial state, but Raharu did receive a promotion to the top-ranked position within the army. The prime ministership of Raharu began. As was customary, upon ascending to such a high political office, Raharu took on a new name, going by the name that he would be remembered by to history, Rainivonina Hitrinyoni. Meanwhile, his brother was promoted to the position of second-in-command in the military hierarchy and took on a new name of his own, Raini Layarifuni. Partially as a result of the meteoric rise of the two brothers, who, for brevity's sake in this episode, I'll just call the Raini brothers, the government of Madagascar began to warm its relations with Europe. The embargo against Britain and France were lifted shortly before their rise to power in 1851, and in 1852, new European immigrants were again admitted for permanent settlement, assuming that they did so through existing legal avenues. Now, we're going to take a brief pause before coming back to the history so we can get a word from this episode's sponsors. Since the vast majority of Europeans who lived on Madagascar after 1837 were of French descent, the majority of European immigrants attracted in 1852 were also French. French influence, both culturally and economically, rapidly superseded the formerly dominant influence of the British on Malagasy society. In addition, Catholic Christianity soon overtook Protestantism as the dominant sect in Madagascar's underground Christian community. The Crown Prince Rakoto himself even secretly converted to Catholicism and began attending underground masses. One of the first French immigrants to take advantage of the reopening of Madagascar's borders was a man who would come to embody the inciting incident of the conflict for the rest of this episode and really the rest of this series. His name was Joseph-Francois Lambert. When the restrictions of European settlement were loosened in 1852, Joseph Lambert was the same age as the Malgasy prince, Rakoto, just 28 years old. But despite this junior age, Lambert had made a lucrative career for himself in perhaps the most sketchy and immoral way possible, utilizing loopholes to illegally trade slaves. Despite the fact that France, Britain, and Madagascar had made the slave trade illegal for decades now, and France and Britain had legally abolished the practice of slavery altogether, Lambert used a legal loophole to continue the miserable trade without technically breaking the law. To quote a traveler and acquaintance of the man explaining his business model, quote, Mr. Lambert had to go and buy Negroes for France on the coast of Zanzibar and Mozambique and transport them to the French colony of Bourbon Island. It is a new species of slavery, invented by the French government and tolerated by England. The Negro is only a slave for five years, and receives from his master independently food, lodging, and two crowns a month. Wow, you know you're a sketchy guy when people credit you in part with bringing about a new species of slavery. But yes, this system of indentured apprenticeships, in which African workers were paid hideously low wages which they couldn't collect on until the end of their bondage, was a perfect replacement of labor after quote-unquote abolition in the French and British colonies looking just different enough from chattel slavery to avoid the suspicion of anti-slavery activists, 
while still being a system of exploitative labor that pays little and that the workers can't leave. As a de facto slave merchant, Lambert was elated when he heard the news that Madagascar was reopening to foreign trade. After all, Madagascar had been the largest importer of enslaved workers in the region for years, so he coveted the opportunity to monopolize the island slave trade. Seeking to get on Ranafaluna's good side before investing in the island, Lambert got into contact with the longtime resident of the island, Napoleon de Lastel, and asked him what he could do to ingratiate himself with the Empress. De Lastel informed Lambert of an ongoing crisis, which, if he assisted the Malagasy government, could surely land him in a favorable light with the Queen. A group of people in southern Madagascar, surrounding the region of Fort Dauphine, had recently rose up against their Marina overlords. The Marina garrison were safe for now within their fort, but they couldn't leave and were running out of food quickly. Lambert immediately seized the opportunity, sailing south with a cargo of rice and alleviating the besieged Marina forces. With the mission complete, Lambert finally gained an audience with the royal family and moved to Madagascar as a new immigrant. After integrating himself into Marina politics, Lambert quickly learned something that veteran foreigners like Laborde and De La Stelle knew well. If you wanted a sympathetic ear in the Marina government, don't go to Rana Falona. Instead, speak to her indirectly through her son and prime minister. Lambert quickly grew exceedingly close with the young prince Rakoto. The two were quite close in age, and Lambert represented the first opportunity Rakoto had to make a foreign friend within his age group. Over time, the two became remarkably close on a personal level, and eventually performed a sacred ritual act called the Fakira. In this ritual, which has similar analogs throughout much of East, South, and Central Africa, each man made a small cut on their body and put the blood in a container. Then, depending on who was carrying out the ritual, the blood was then mixed together in a cup and then, depending on how the ritual was carried out, either drank by both parties, used as ink to sign a document, or rubbed on both parties' hands. This represented a sacred blood oath, or blood brotherhood, representing a new relationship held between these men. They were now closer than just friends, but informal family. What happened next involving the two's close relationship is a matter of dispute, to say the least. Various accounts of the events differ dramatically on the exact dynamic of what went down, while many figures involved reacted in a way which seems out of character. But the long and short of it is that not long after arriving on Madagascar, Lambert started cooking up an ambitious plan to establish himself as the leading European figure on Madagascar. His newly forged blood brotherhood with Rakoto would become a crucial piece of his plot. As mentioned earlier, the European population had been eagerly anticipating Rana Faluna's demise and the ascension of Rakoto for decades now, but the seemingly ageless queen simply refused to die. Over the next few months, Lambert served as an agent of the Marina court. On one occasion, he played a role in negotiating with a French businessman who had illegally immigrated into northern Madagascar and set up a factory there, with Lambert convincing him to leave under threat of being forced to by the Malagasy army. But if you were under the impression that Lambert was acting as a sincere and loyal agent of the queen, you should think again. This, too, was part of his plan to bring the whole of Madagascar under his own influence. Now, this is where the story gets sketchy, because different accounts of events paint very different pictures of who was involved in the scheme, to what extent, and what each person sought to get out of the plan. 
You see, Lambert had been plotting to speed up the process of Rakuto's ascension by overthrowing Empress Rana Falona in a military coup. During his time in Madagascar, Lambert had been engaging in quiet clandestine negotiations with many important movers and shakers in Malgasy government, including Jean Laborde, the Raini brothers, and possibly Rakoto himself. In these secret meetings, Lambert shared his plans and received mixed messages. In a shocking twist, Jean Laborde was apparently quite enthusiastic about the prospect of betraying and overthrowing his longtime friend Rana Falona. Rakoto, the planned successor of Rana Falona, was even closer to Laborde, and he also believed that the coup would improve relations between Madagascar and France, and give him new economic and political opportunities as a result. For their part, the Rainey brothers were interested, but skeptical. In particular, while they stated that they thought the plan was compelling, they doubted heavily that any substantial portion of the army would be willing to align themselves with the coup. The biggest question mark in the conspiracy comes down to Rakoto himself. According to Lambert, Rakoto was over the moon about the proposition, and more than ready to take over as the new monarch. Lambert left Madagascar in December of 1855, heading to France in hopes of receiving support for his coup. He brought with him two letters, which he claimed were signed by the Malagasy prince Rakoto himself. The first of the two letters consisted of the prince beseeching the emperor of France, Napoleon III, for military aid. The letter stated that Rakoto was a lover of European culture and Christianity, and that he was eager to fully reopen trade with Europe to a new level, if only his tyrannical mother was overthrown. The second letter, and the one which would prove incredibly consequential to Malagasy history, was the so-called Lambert Charter. The document acted as a charter for a new company, the Madagascar Landholding Industrial and Commercial Company, of which Lambert would be the sole owner. This document, allegedly also signed by Prince Rakoto and the Raini brothers, not only chartered the company, but also gave it essentially unlimited rights and resources. As laid out in the charter, the Madagascar company held unlimited rights to mine Malgasy ore deposits, had the right to cultivate any and all unclaimed land on the island, held a monopoly on all exports leaving Madagascar, and possessed the unique right to import and export products entirely free of trade duties. And, as if this wasn't enough already, the charter guaranteed that the Malagasy government would dedicate free labor to the company's projects in the form of Fanampuana, and even dictated the surrender of a northern palace in Madagascar to serve as the company's future headquarters. Upon sharing the charter around in France, Lambert secured a small but not insignificant amount of support for his venture. In 1857, comfortable with the arms and money that he had received, he returned to Madagascar. In an effort to conceal the true intentions of his journey, Lambert brought a small treasure trove of gifts back with him, such as clocks and musical instruments, to give as presents to the queen. Upon returning to Antanarifu, Lambert met with Laborde to review the final preparations for the coup that were made in his absence. The plan that Laborde had made went as follows. The supporters of the coup had infiltrated the royal guards, including the man who secured the gate of the roof of Antanarifu at night. At a given moment, 
this guard would open the gates to the palace, and a small entourage of pro-coup nobles, soldiers, generals, and foreign craftsmen would enter the palace and announce the coronation of Rakoto as the next Mpanjaka Madagascara. They would proclaim to the now former queen that, sorry, but this is the will of the people. You are queen no more. Except, it turned out, none of this was going to go according to plan. The conspirators had severely estimated Rana Faluna. The queen had, in reality, known about the plot really since its conception. Now, it's not clear how the queen first found out about the plan, as there are any number of ways that the news could have spilled. One possibility is that it was Rakoto himself who spilled the beans to his mother. Another is that British diplomats, who also knew about the coup at a pretty early stage, gave Rana Faluna a heads up. But the most likely candidate for whistleblower was Prime Minister Rainivonina Hitrignoni. The main piece of evidence backing up his status as the whistleblower is that, well, this isn't the last time that the Lambert Charter will be on the desk of powerful Malgasy politicians. And, by the time that the next one comes around again, Rainivoni Hitartrioni will be the only member of this group whose name won't be on the list of signatures. Despite having knowledge of the coup even in its nascent stage, Rana Faluna had decided to let the coup develop until the very last minute, in order to suss out potentially disloyal officers. So, just before they were about to receive the signal that the gate was open, a Malagasy army surrounded the coup makers, and placed them all under arrest. The very next day, Rana Faluna held an official assembly at Antanarifu, in which she informed the public of the brewing coup, as well as the fate of the coup's participants. All Malagasy people who had actively participated in the coup were to be executed. All soldiers and officers who had participated in the coup were to be executed. Meanwhile, the small population of remaining foreigners in Madagascar were instead expelled to avoid an international incident. They were ordered to leave Madagascar within the hour, and that all property they left behind was now property of the Malgasy state. The sole exception to this, of course, was Jean Laborde. Laborde had now been living in Madagascar for more than 25 years. He had learned Malgasy, become integrated into the local culture, and by all accounts was a trusted and close friend of the Empress. While the betrayal of Lambert was honestly not that unusual or unexpected, Laborde's betrayal stung deep. To Rana Faluna, he wasn't Jean Laborde, he was Niedada, a man who she had grown to trust and appreciate over his decades living in Madagascar, the man who had acted as her son's surrogate father. Even after his betrayal, Rana Faluna couldn't bear to do anything more than take it easy on Nidada. Unlike the other Europeans, Laborde was given a full day to make his exit, giving him some extra time to gather his property and make his goodbyes. The only property of Laborde that was seized by the state was his home, since he couldn't carry it, as well as his many enslaved workers, who were, of course, forbidden from leaving Madagascar. Lambert's failed coup ended any hopes of a warming relationship between Madagascar and Europe under Rana Falona. The Empress had let her guard down briefly in the 1850s, thawing relations, only for the newly arrived Lambert to immediately take advantage of her very, very moderate liberalization. The final days of Rana Falona's rule were therefore marked by a reinvigorated aloofness on the part of the Malgasy Empress further hostility on part of the European powers, and heightened oppression of Madagascar's tiny remaining Christian population. 
Tangana ordeals, which for the last few years at least had mostly been on hiatus, became commonplace again. Perhaps surprisingly, or perhaps an indication of his role as a whistleblower, one person who managed to escape from the failed coup relatively consequence-free was the Prince of Madagascar, Rakoto. Again, just how involved Rakoto was in the coup was heavily debated among historians. Evidence for his involvement includes his signature on the Lambert Charter, his letter to Napoleon III requesting French support for the coup, and his extremely close relationship with Lambert. Traditionally, this has resulted in Malgasy historians implicating Rakoto as part of the coup. But recently, some historians have been more charitable. It's very possible, given Lambert's behavior, that the prince's signature on both documents were forged, or that perhaps his signature on the charter was legitimate, but that Lambert used his signature there to forge it on the request for aid. The main contentious element of Rakoto's involvement relies on the fact that he went unpunished. For this reason, he is often suspected of being one of the whistleblowers responsible for Anafalona discovering the coup, or at the very least, that he jumped ship early. These are all possible, but keep in mind, this is far from the first time we've seen Malgasy monarchs act exceedingly forgiving towards crimes committed by their children. While there is debate to be had on the topic, and honestly I could see either side as plausible, I think there is one facet of Rakoto's involvement in the coup that cannot be denied, and this is that he almost certainly did sign the Lambert Charter. While I can't explain my rationale for why I can assert this so certainly yet, I think my reasoning will become clear in a later episode. The most consequential change that came after the coup was the expulsion of Jean Laborde. Since the exodus of the London missionaries, the only major industrialists left on Madagascar were Laborde, de Lastelle, and the managers working for him. Napoleon de Lastelle had passed away in 1854, leaving Laborde and his managers as the last remaining industrialists. And after Laborde was exiled for his involvement in the Lambert coup, it was hard to find a replacement. Many of his managers had either been involved directly with the coup and were therefore executed, or chose to give up their managerial positions after Laborde left. Truthfully, Laborde's force of personality, combined with Rana Faluna's resources, were the only things keeping the high-tech industrial center at Mantasoa running. The conditions at the factories were incredibly cruel and alienating. Its jobs paid little to nothing, and now there was no foreman to keep it running. With Laborde out of Madagascar, the Mantasua complex fell into immediate disuse. The industrial experiment of Madagascar went with it, crumbling into ruin. Some workers burned their old factories, a cathartic expression of their long-repressed rage. But most of the factories and warehouses simply eroded over time, with vines creeping over them and their stones crumbling into dust. The furnaces went cold, the water wheels stopped turning. The industrial hub of Madagascar became a ghost town. The decline of Mantasoa represents a sad conclusion to what could have been a hopeful era of Marina history. Madagascar was swimming against the current of global history, on the path to become an exception to the great divergence in wealth and power taking place between Europe and the rest of the world at this time. On the one hand, it is unfair to say that the industrialization experiment ended totally with Ranafalona's deportations after the Lambert coup. Later, Malagasy leaders would similarly try their hands at encouraging industrial growth, with varying results. But it's safe to say that Madagascar never again got anywhere close to becoming an industrialized nation, as it did under Ranafalona. 
The success and subsequent unraveling of Rana Falona's industrialization represents one of the great what-ifs in African history. What if Rana Falona had succeeded, and Madagascar became the Meiji Japan of Africa, an island nation resisting the trend of European colonial domination, acting as an exception to the European monopoly on empire in the industrial period? Alt history writers, this is uncharted territory, just saying. And not too long after the deportation of Laborde and the crumbling of Mantasoa, Rana Falona herself passed away in 1861. Having reigned her kingdom for 32 years, she is the longest reigning monarch in Merina history. Rana Falona's rule is, certainly, the most contentious era of Malagasy history. Fittingly, her legacy remains controversial as well. In traditional Western accounts of Madagascar, Rana Falona and her husband Radama are presented as foils. Radama, on the one hand, is presented in European histories as the ideal African. He is intelligent, energetic, friendly to Europeans, and most importantly, he recognizes and seeks to emulate European superiority. Rana Falona is presented as the opposite in many ways. She is simple, xenophobic, tyrannical, superstitious, and refuses to recognize European superiority. This assessment, which dominated popular histories until surprisingly recently, is flawed in a number of ways. And, in an interesting twist, the error here might lie in the idea that Arana Falona represented a turn away from her husband's policies at all. A deeper analysis of Radama's rule challenges the notion that he was ever the xenophile he was portrayed as. While he undeniably admired European rulership and technology, Radama enacted several policies during his rule, especially in his later years, which contradicted his friendliness towards Europeans. After all, it had been Radama's capture of French-claimed territories that provoked conflict with the French, the pieces of which Rana Falona was left to pick up. Radama also eventually rolled back his policy of free trade with European merchants, enacting harsh export duties against their pleas. By the end of his rule, Radama was beginning to further regulate Christian schools, a policy continued under his wife. In fact, when you look at many of Rana Falona's policies, there is a great deal of precedent to be found in her husband's reign. Now, I'm not arguing that there weren't substantial political distinctions between the two. There definitely were. While Radama certainly grew colder towards Europeans towards the back end of his life, it's hard to imagine him ever enacting anti-Christian edicts half as harsh as Rana Falona's. But while there are distinctions between the two, they are not the polar opposites they are often made out to be. The protectionism of Rana Falona started under Radama. The militarization of Merina society that took place under Rana Faluna started under Radama. The harsh labor conditions of industrialization under Rana Faluna started under Radama. Speaking of industrialization, I've always found it a little strange that Rana Faluna is typically credited with ending Malgasi industrialization through a deportation of Laborde, while it is ignored that she is responsible for most of that industrialization in the first place. It's easy to forget that when Radama passed away and Rana Falona took power, the industrial experiment in Madagascar was still at a tiny scale, consisting of a few tanning, milling, and manufacturing firms on the brink of collapse. The entire development of the Mantasoa industrial complex took place under Rana Falona. Jean Laborde, the greatest of the European industrialists in Madagascar, was invited by Rana Falona. 
the De La Stelle company expanded to its height under Rana Faluna. It is sometimes claimed that Rana Faluna inherited a kingdom on its way to industrialization and destroyed her husband's progress in industrialization. This is untrue. No, the vast majority of progress in industrialization took place under her. Furthermore, the characterization of Rana Faluna as a hardcore xenophobe also has its flaws. Many of the things that are typically listed as examples of westernization under Radama, such as the advent of Creole-influenced architecture, importation of European industrial methods, and engaging in western dress, these all continued under Rana Faluna. While her policies often appeared xenophobic in isolation, you can usually see through this pretty quickly when you notice all the exceptions, and instead it becomes clear that these policies were typically motivated by cold political concerns. The most common misunderstanding of Rana Faluna's rule was her supposed expulsion of the London missionaries. Remember, no such expulsion ever occurred. They were allowed and even encouraged to stay, but only forbidden from proselytizing. Her persecution of Christians was motivated less by her own personal religious prejudices and rather by her desire to maintain a monopoly on the civic religion of Imerina. She did not irrationally hate Christians and Europeans, and obviously even admired them in some ways. After all, there's a reason why she allowed European-born Christians to continue their own worship freely, since their worship didn't undermine the Merina civic religion. But while it's tempting to defend Rana Faluna's legacy from the mythology surrounding her, it's important to keep in mind just who is being defended. Rana Faluna was far from the unthinking xenophobic monster she is sometimes made out to be, but she was, instead a different monster altogether. Sure, some of the more absurd claims of autogenocide are untrue, but she has a culpable role in stagnating Madagascar's population through cruel and unnecessary violence towards the country's working classes. In addition to its obvious moral issues, too, her persecution of Christians was also counterproductive. She permanently ruptured relations with many of her most important immigrant workers. While her persecution had not intended to do this, it did have the effect of permanently rupturing relations with the London Missionary Society, which lost her many of her most important immigrant workers. It also persecuted a religion in which educated Malgasy with management experience and literacy skills were dramatically overrepresented. And what did she get out of this? a few hundred political dissidents that weren't necessarily a problem anymore? The decision was not only unethical, but also undeniably a political error. While, yes, Christianity did have some issues in terms of compatibility with Hasina ideology, there's really nothing from the time that ever indicates that a Christian uprising was imminent or even a serious danger at all. Now, those who praise Rana Faluna primarily highlight her struggle to keep her country independent of foreign political influence during an era of resurging global imperialism. But strangely enough, her heir would do the exact opposite. Despite his involvement in such a blatant and naked coup attempt, Rakoto actually remained the heir apparent to the Merina kingdom. And when his mother passed away, Rakoto, now going by a fancy new throne name, will reverse almost all of her policies, leading into a tumultuous period of Malgasy history. Join us in our next episode, as Prince Rakoto becomes King Radama II, and the reforms to modernize Madagascar breathe their last. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. 
If you like our show, then we would greatly appreciate if you could help support the show and our project of freely available online history education. You can do this by supporting us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, or by sharing the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy learning about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Dimitri, Emmanuel Zaudi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sebelavie, Evan Edwards, Pascal Makocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwadike, Sheyun Oloronti Main, Kwajua Mankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, Samuel Badu, Rassan Firgiani, Niti, Kitty, and Tariq Beetleman, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot.